and welcome to a new episode, episode four of A Link to the Cast. I am Mark Robinson, and with me from across the pond is, as usual, Dave Ryan. Dave Ryan, what is your health status update for the week? I feel bad this week because I have no health status update. Like, I feel great about myself because I haven't had any sort of uh, new tales of horror about my leg or anything like that. But, uh, you know, I have no anecdotes for the start of the show to seem kind of whimsical. This so. this is a problem because this show pretty much relies on your uh, health to get through the first 10 to 15 minutes. <laughs> my dodgy leg is one of the tent poles of the programme. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm afraid I'm not bringing up my end this week, but sure, look, <laughs> what can you do? What can you do? Oh, well, I'll, just, I guess I'll you... just have to go and try and intentionally injure myself by the next show and see what happens. Or you can just tell us about what you've been playing this week. Yeah, I might start off there. Uh, I've been playing a few bits and bobs. I won't, I won't take too long. To uh, get through all these, I finally beat Ether One, Mark. Did they after... patch it to a degree that you can actually finish it? Then this is interesting that you say this. It had by the time I had beaten it, it had frozen up several more times, kind of coming in between areas, which was one of the problems I had quite frequently. And that problem of uh, loading into the game taking about ten minutes that I experienced live on the show last week persisted throughout. On top of that as well, I am almost certain there's slight differences because um, I started getting paranoid that some of the differences between um, people's kind of what they were saying about the PC version and PS4 version were in my head. So I started looking up actual comparisons and I'm almost certain that there are certain things missing from the PS4 version that would allow you to complete the thing 100% the first time round, which is troubling to me. There's one, there are combination wheels straight the game yellow and red ones and uh, the yellow ones usually open safes to find these little statues in them called knocker statues that collectively tell a little short story and that's kind of one of the trophies for the game is to unlock all of those statues i got to the end of the game and i'm pretty sure i've searched every nook and cranny of every single area and i'm one combination wheel short because i used it somewhere where there was some other sort of puzzle behind the combination rather than a knocker statue so if I want this platinum that I had been saying in weeks past that I really wanted, I'm going to have to do the game over again from the start. Oh, good. And, uh, yeah, and <laughs> after all the hassle the last time, I'm not entirely sure that's something I want to do. I will say, though, in its defense, that the story of the game is absolutely beautiful. Once you finally get the end of it, it is tragic, it's heartbreaking, it's brilliant. I still stand by my statement from... I think two weeks ago, that it is one of the most unique kind of narrative experiences you'll have in a game this year, if you can get it to fucking work until it's finished. So, like, do at the end of it all, do I recommend it? Like, it was great, but I'm not necessarily sure, unless they patch it again and these freezes stop happening, that it's worth going through. But, again, it was a free game on PS Plus, so who am I really to complain? Yeah, well, I'm going to probably put it in my list of things to play this week, uh, so I guess I will come back next week and uh, enlighten you on if I've had any harrowing similar experiences to what you've yeah, had. Yeah, that, that, that'll, be, that'll be good to know that if you download the game fresh, if you're still having the same uh, issues, uh, to put it mildly, that I've been having. Uh, I've also finally beaten, I say finally beaten, it took me a couple of afternoons, uh, Wolfenstein The Old Blood that I talked about last week, mm-hmm. the standalone prequel for The New Order. Two episodes of it uh, where you're, I, I briefly explained the storyline of it last week. Um, I can conclusively say now that it's finished, it was a hell of a lot of fun. It is kind of, it's, I, I want to say it's more of the same as it was in 
the new order, but it kind of because it's the two small chapters, two small episodes kind of, like it moves quicker. It feels like it moves quicker than the new order. So like I definitely if you're a fan of the series or if you don't know a, a good way to do it as well because uh, you might want to commit to the I think it's still 35 40 euro or whatever the equivalent is in pounds on the PS store to buy Wolfenstein new. Um, I don't know, you could probably get a good deal on a second hand at this point, but if you're not sure you want to commit that money, you could just buy these couple of chapters online, try it out. If you don't like it, the full game probably isn't for you. If you do like it, there's a lot more game to play if you buy the new order. And re- remind me, are these prequel, or is this a prequel? Yeah, it's prequel. It's before the set before the events of the new order. It's set in 1946, and I believe the opening scene of old... Uh, the new order is like a couple of months after the ending of this prequel so it doesn't spoil anything so you can feel free to play these chapters before you play the new uh, the new order and the mechanics are the same so you'll be pretty much you'll, be, you'll have the whole the how the game works down pat by the time you get to the full game so you can play it in whatever order you want it's kind of a last of us last of us left behind sort of thing it's just up to yourself whether you want to play them in the same order or not what else have we been playing? Um, <clears throat> the small, or yesterday, Telltale Games dropped episode 4 of their Game of Thrones series. And this is something I wanted to kind of start a discussion with you about, because I don't think we've ever talked about it on or off the air. Um, how, how do you feel about the episodic, the Telltale Games uh, approach to things that's becoming more and more popular in the last couple of years? I have never played one, so I don't have much of an opinion. You never played one. Well, now I've at this point now I've played a little bit of Tales from the Borderlands. I've played a little bit of Wolf Among Us. I've played all of season one, a part of season two of The Walking Dead. Telltale Games, they're they're interesting. They're great, kind of like they're almost. They remind me of like there's very little kind of actual kind of combat or anything like that. Like it's mainly kind of dialogue based. It's what I would describe them as being is like long interactive cutscenes and that sounds awful but I really enjoy it uh, The Walking Dead was brilliant it told a very emotional very powerful very raw story there are there is a fair bit more kind of action in that game than there is in say the Game of Thrones one that I'm playing through at the moment the interesting thing I always found about the Telltale games is that I've always found every single one of them I've played like they're very buggy games like sometimes art assets don't load properly and they're very fuzzy in the background Some things, sometimes things just kind of I was playing one of the episodes of The Walking Dead on my Vita, and for some reason, like, multiple times I reloaded the same scene, and the thing I had to touch on the touchpad to kind of get me to the next part wasn't touchable on the Vita, so I was dying repeatedly. So, like, they're kind of... They're always buggy, but there's a charm to them. Like, the, the story is very much kind of worth it to me. Game of Thrones, uh, like, I haven't read a lot of the, the Walking Dead comics, so I don't know how kind of, if you're a fan of the comics, will you be a fan of the game? There's very little crossover with the TV show. Um, one character from the TV show shows up for a little while in one of the episodes of season one of The Walking Dead. So if you're a fan of the TV show, it definitely doesn't necessarily mean you'll be a fan of the game. With Game of Thrones, though, if you like Game of Thrones, you're into the lore, but not hardcore enough to read um, thousands and thousands of pages that our, our good friend George Railroad Martin wrote. This might be the game for you. It adds a bit more. It's set kind of off the beaten track of the main events of the TV show or the books, where at the same time, there's a lot of the major characters from the show or the books that kind of cross over for a scene or two at a time. There's characters you recognize. 
played by, like, voiced by the actors who play them in the TV show, which is cool. Uh, but very much enjoying it. Only a little bit of the way into episode four now, but it's been a very good season so far. I think there's two more episodes left before it's complete. Um, I do enjoy the Telltale, the Telltale model for what it is. That you kind of get an episode every other month because it's kind of <clears throat> it's something nice to look forward to every now and then. There's something bite-sized because for me, like, and it's been a recurring theme on the show so far that kind of I have a lot more work to do in my daily life than I'm used to the last few years before I started teaching. So it's nice to know that I have games at home that are like bite-sized chunks that I can play in a couple of hours, beat them, and then, you know, wait a couple of months for the next one. So I enjoy that kind of structure. <clears throat> the last game I've been playing, and I've only kind of uh, started playing this, so I'm only kind of a couple of bits through it, is the Handsome Jack Collection, Borderlands. So I started playing Borderlands 2, and Borderlands 2 was a game that completely kind of passed me by on PS3 for whatever reason. So I decided to pick up the Handsome Jack Collection. Actually, I think it was on a sale or something on uh, PSN, so I picked it up. And uh, enjoying the hell out of that, uh, the art style of Borderlands is very suited to kind of like it's it's one of those ones that's kind of like almost a cell shading where it doesn't really, <clears throat> it doesn't age greatly. Like when you play it on PS4, it doesn't feel like a PS3 game, if you get where I'm coming from. It feels kind of like that it could have easily come out this year. It's a fun game, there's a lot, like it's a... It's an FPS with a lot of RPG elements. I'm pretty sure, like, anybody listening to this probably knows the, sca- the, the the story with Borderlands 2. They know, they probably know Back to Front more than I do. Well, but, the story. Uh, that, yeah. <laughs> well, like, it's a lot of fun so far, anyway, and there's a great wit to the game as well. Like, it's it's kind of, you get a lot with kind of first-person shooters and things with RPG elements, and then you get, you get a lot of those games take themselves very seriously. And the one thing you'll be very clear of from very early on in Borderlands is that it does not take itself seriously at all. No, Which is great. And the thing with Borderlands, uh, I mean, kind of a, a connection between the Telltale games, and obviously because they've got the, the Borderlands game that they are making. I don't think that's been released or there's nothing. Oh, Telltale? Yeah, it is out. Yeah, two oh, episodes have come out. Oh, okay. Already. I, I'm completely um, out of loop on that. But that's like, yeah, got, I, I would. I played through a little bit of the first episode, and it's good. It kind of it fits. It, it's very Borderlands. Because a lot of people kind of poo pooed that for the fact that the story of Borderlands is pretty naff, but. I I took the positive that the actual characters in the Borderlands world are all pretty memorable and 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 completely out of their minds, and that they're kind of characters that I think that Telltale could probably do some really good stuff with. Yeah, the uh, the thing I'm already kind of um, noticing very early on in Borderlands Two is that it's not so much about what the overarching story of the whole, whole game is; it's more about the interactions between different characters. That's a lot of fun. And that's what will keep me playing the game. And by interaction, it's Handsome Jack being a massive prick, but you kind of yeah, like yeah. for it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, it's much like the way I find with um, uh, Sunset Overdrive on the Xbox One that I'm still playing as well. The overarching story of Sunset Overdrive isn't anything new or anything like that, but the interactions between the characters and the different things your character says as well while he's running around the city is what keeps you coming back, because it's so funny, it's so dark, it's so strange. Like, I was playing it last night, and... Um, my character made a very, very obscure reference to cult classic, terrible 1980s kung fu sort of movie, Jim Kata, which <laughs> popped me something fierce because, like, I was I was sure only about 40 people living in the world had ever heard of Jim Kata. So yeah, it's the kind of like Borderlands is kind of yeah, it's the wit, it's the exchanges between the characters and the references they all make, much like with Sunset Overdrive, that'll keep me coming back to it rather than the actual 
story of it. Like, it's not like with kind of something like a, like a Last of Us or anything where it is kind of the huge story. You know, there's, it's obviously building towards an end point or something like that, that I'm, that I'm keep on going through Borderlands for that. No, it's just the interactions between the characters really is what I really like about it. Yeah. But anyway. I was gonna say, I, I did find with Borderlands, well, both of them, that I, I kind of hit a wall with both of them. Um, I really enjoyed them for a good six to seven hours, and then it, the the game kind of follows a similar path, and it, it starts to repeat itself, um, but just kind of gets bigger with what, what it's doing. And because you don't really have a narrative or a story to follow, your sort of incentive to keep going is purely based on the loot collection side of the game. Um, yeah. And I didn't find it compelling enough. And like I've I've started Borderlands 2 on about three or four different occasions now with the purpose that I'm going to get through it and I think part of the problem is I've always played it by myself I've never tried to get through the game playing with someone else uh, and I think that is something that would probably be the motivation to, to get through to the end. Yeah I have um, my, one of my housemates here Brian has the Handsome Jack collection as well and he's on holidays at the moment once he gets back he uh, wants to play through a fair bit of co-op with me and I'm fine with that because I find that um I'm not a big online multiplayer player for a lot of games, but I do like the kind of online co-op or couch co-op. Uh, I really enjoy getting to play through a quest with like a friend of yours or something like that. Is much more kind of like the whole multiplayer deathmatch thing. And like you said last week hey, when you were talking about Splatoon, the idea of like 12-year-olds screaming at you and calling you all sorts of things doesn't appeal to me at all. But kind of, you know, getting to play through something with a friend of yours, like even when maybe it becomes a bit fetch, que- fetch quest or loot-based... It'll help you get through that if you have somebody else to have a bit of a laugh with, you know? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, enough about me. What have you been playing this week, Mark? Uh, I, have, I have been playing a whole lot of guacamole. I, I have seen. <laughs> I've seen my activity feed blow up with guacamole the last week. Yeah, so I started playing it last week. And, um, I mean, I played it when it first came out. And I was playing it on my PSV at the time. And immediately got hooked on it because... It's a Castlevania Metroid type game with 2D beat 'em up influences based around Day of the Dead Mexican Festival's Luchador Wrestling. It's pretty much everything I could ask for in terms of what I enjoy <laughs> in life. Unless they could some way find a way to implement Cowboy Bebop into it, it's got everything that I want. I was going to say, if they managed to implement Studio Ghibli stuff in it or something uh, that like that. That as well, yeah. That, that'll that be uh, the next Stringbox Studios game. Um, <laughs> and I, I I loved it dearly. And so I got my PS4 and Guacamole was there with the PS Plus for this month. And I thought, fuck it, let's go for it again. Not just, not just Guacamole, but Guacamole Super Turbo Championship Edition. This is true, with all the added content as well, which I never got the first time round. So I thought, right, let's fucking have some of this. Uh, and also playing it on a bigger screen as well and playing it on a controller that doesn't destroy your thumbs after a couple of hours because uh, the thing about Guacamelee is it's very intense on you know your sort of finger coordination when playing with the controller the, the kind of the general premise of it is is uh, as a 2D beat em up you have enemies that will eventually start appearing with different colored shades around them and um, they have like green, red, yellow, and blue. And they refer to different uh, special abilities that you pick up throughout the game. And these abilities you use in combat as well as uh, moves that you need to traverse around the environment. And each of these moves responds to a different color. So you get to a point where you're in a room with about 15 enemies and they've all got different shades around them. So you have to focus on that enemy to hit a particular type of move to then combo up to hit another type of enemy with a different shadow. And on top of that, 
you the whole game is split into two different dimensions um so the whole whole world is it's a link to the cast a link to the past if you will hey. in that you have your dark world and your light world and this follows suit as well but with this you've got enemies that appear on the screen who are in the dark world uh, and so they all the kind of land of the dead if you will and uh, they have a, they're like like a black shadow so you can't hit them but they can still hit you so when you get the ability to dimension swap you then have to sometimes go between dimensions to hit certain enemies to come back out of that dimension to hit other enemies other enemies while avoiding other enemies and it's uh it gets pretty intense and you feel like a king when you start to really chain together like 200 hit combos it's a game that is just it's very bright it's very colorful um it's got some really good writing as well and my kind of issue i sometimes have with indie games of this nature is they get a little bit too self-referential a little bit too self-aware that oh we're in an indie game uh and guacamole does have some of this it has like posters up in its one of its main towns with references to uh, other video games and other internet memes but with a more kind of mexican flavor to it but your trainee master, if you will, uh, he's very, very funny. And he's pretty one of my favourite characters in a video game for a while. Uh, and he's not, like, you know, heavily influenced in the game. But he's his kind of big thing is that uh, to get these special abilities, you have to break these Chozu statues uh, in not, you know, a massive reference to Super Metroid. Uh, and he gets really pissed off that you keep breaking them because they're basically his furniture. And so there's a nice little relationship between the two of you. Uh, overall, it's just, it's really, really fun. If you have the ability to play it uh, for free at the moment because it's on PS Plus, please do. I got completely obsessed and did it twice. Well, I played it entirely on hard mode last night in about four hours because I wanted that last trophy. I've never wanted to get a platinum trophy before, but I've finally broken that seal and I feel okay. I've taken myself down a very, very dark path. Yeah, it's um, that that whole platinum thing. Once you get your first one, it becomes uh, like I think I didn't have one before I had a PS4, and then about a couple of months in, I realised I was you know very close to a platinum on Lego Marvel, and about a year later now, I have I think eleven platinums, some of which have been excruciating to get. Even though I didn't have to get them, you don't get anything for getting them. The, the cool Bioshock Infinite them. one just. <laughs> Boggles Bioshock my mind. Infinite, Bioshock Infinite, and FIFA 14 uh, were two very difficult ones. I didn't think the FIFA 14 was too incredibly difficult, but I think it's. I think still to this day, only 0.2 of a percent of people have the trophy, so it must be difficult. Well, I no, I think that's more down to your core base of FIFA football players don't give a fuck about trophies. Hey, look, I'm still going to say it's challenging. Okay. Just so that I can, I can have a bit of pride in it. Okay. Anyway, what else have you been playing this week? I'm going to throw a little. Uh controversial dust into the realm of of uh, links to the cast because I've been playing Shadow of Mordor Middle Earth and I don't really like it and I entirely oh, I entirely oh. put this down to it's not my kind of game I'm not saying that I think it's a bad game I'm saying it's not my kind of game and I'll tell you exactly why do tell I don't like open world games that are not made by Rockstar or are not called Sleeping Dogs <laughs> Okay. And I specifically don't like games that take a lot of their core influence in game design from the Assassin's Creed series, which I feel Shadow of Mordor kind of does. One of the big things for me is side quests and how they are implemented into a game. And 
Assassin's Creed was one of the first games I remember that, that took this design trope and really kind of strangled it for all it's worth. And I feel a lot of games, whether by Ubisoft or otherwise, have followed suit. In that they just they throw these side quests in as a way to just lengthen the time that it takes to complete the game or just to fill up with like trophies or whatever else. Um, but there's a lot of them have no real rhyme or reason to it, and it is literally for the purpose of just, oh, I need to get that trophy. Ironically, just saying, as I've got my first trophy and I kind of liked it. But And I do have the platinum for this one as well. I Well, I don't doubt that. But I feel there's a link here between what I'm going to say about Guacamelee and why I wanted to get the platinum for that and the exploration, and why I don't want to do it for Shadow of Mordor. So with Shadow of Mordor, you have like a side quest of these collectibles that are just littered on the map, and there's no real explanation for why they're there. Just pick them up, and then hey, they are. Um, you can upgrade whatever abilities, weapons, but it's just there from the start. There's no reason to it. There's no. There's no real call at the start to just crack on with the main storyline of the game, and it just kind of throws me throws me off a little bit because I'm like, well, what what am I meant to be doing? What shall I do first? You know, it's why I like say, the Grand Theft Auto games or the Red Dead Redemption games, because you need to... You're usually eased in with a couple of missions to give you the kind of... the flavour of what the main story is before it starts to give you little threads of other bits and pieces that you can start to do. Here, and certainly Assassin's Creed as well, it's just fucking thrown at you. And the connection I was going to make between Guacamelee and Shadow Mordor is that with Guacamelee, there are all the chests that you need to collect that... Um, give you extra life, uh, extra stamina for your attacks you do and stuff. But they are in pretty difficult places uh, to to navigate, and the way that you navigate across the world um, is through actual skill and learning how to play the game. With a lot of the ones that I was seeing in in the first couple of hours of playing Shadow Mordor, they're just there on the map, and you just go to it, and there's no challenge to it. I don't feel compelled to go and find them. Um, obviously it helps as well that Guacamelee is a game that's only really about 6 hours long well it was 10 hours with the amount of exploration I was doing Shadow of Mordor there's god knows how long that actual game is and I just um, I think uh, I got the platinum clocked at about 28 or 30 hours oh that's not as bad as I thought it was going to be yeah um, like that's like yeah I wouldn't say there's like a couple of trophies that took me like a couple of hours to get like there's one where you have to get a level 25 rune, and that requires you to do a lot of setup with that nemesis system, and that's, like, the most time-consuming trophy. But uh, other than that, like, it's not very... You, I suppose, you could, like, if you're not... If you're really lost at the start, it could lengthen it by a few hours, but, like, because it was kind of Assassin's Creed world traversal, except, I would argue, done better, and the kind of... The combat system very reminiscent of the... Ar- Arkham games, so I was it familiar is. with that combat system. But this is my other argument I wanted to make as well. The, on, yeah. the 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 Batman combat system. So yes, they are very very similar, but there's one key difference here. With Arkham Asylum or Arkham City, that kind of knockout blow, that finishing blow that you can do to to take out an enemy, it's quick, it's snappy, and it lets you get onto whoever the next opponent is around you. With the Shadow of Mordor one, you have to hit that kind of killing blow but the time between when you trigger to do that killing blow and by the time it actually does it you've usually got two or three other enemies around you so uh, fights can... yeah that's a, that's a thing though like as you get this is where the rpg elements come into it where later on you unlock things on the skill tree that enable you to do quicker executions so that you can breeze on through and execute multiple enemies with, 
it's like kind of very quickly without kind of stalling. Ah, fuck that! I'm Batman. I can do it from the start. <laughs> but this is the, you. Got, you got to work for your reward, man. You got to work for it. You can't be spoon fed. I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. And I mean, obviously, as well, it didn't help that. And I've made this kind of comment to you that it's a, a middle earth fantasy game, which is one of my least favorite genres for any kind of storytelling. So that isn't helping itself either. Um, I'm going to try and stick some more time into it, but within the first four or five hours, I'm just like, this is not my thing. Look, uh, to like, to, no, like, you're, because it's like not your kind of game, there's no real kind of criticisms I can make to that theory that will change your mind in any way, like, because, you know, to each their own sort of a thing, but like, to kind of. But I am wrong. To, no, well, just to <laughs> illustrate kind of like my perspective on it, because I had a lot of fun now. Well, I your do perspective enjoy... on a lot of other people as well, because a lot of people like this game. Yeah, it was it was Giant Bomb's game of the year, <laughs> like which shocked me at the time because I thought like I had a lot of fun with it, but I didn't necessarily think people would think it was game of the year or anything like that. But anyway, um, like I had a lot of fun with it. Like I said, I think the the world traversal stuff, like how you got around jumping and leaving all that sort of stuff, is like an Assassin's Creed game, ex- except done better because I had more fun doing it than I ever had, kind of touching an Assassin's Creed game or even looking at an Assassin's Creed game. It just looked and felt a lot more fun. Those executions, which I was not expecting when I picked up the game, were, like, I seem to remember, like, the afternoon I got it and brought it home, and kind of Brian was sitting beside me on the couch as I was playing it, like, and the dude was just screaming like girls as you rammed a broadsword through the temple of an orc for the first time, completely unexpectedly. I had a lot of fun with the combat system. Obviously, that Arkham combat system is a hell of a lot of fun. I think something that kind of everybody harps on when they talk about how great uh, Shadow of Mordor is, is that uh, nemesis system for the kind of the hierarchy of enemies that you face throughout the game. And I do think that's kind of, that's something I hadn't seen before. That's something I really, really enjoyed. And kind of as you get further and you unlock different things in the skill tree to start kind of possessing and manipulating different kind of bosses throughout the game, um, that kind of becomes even more uh, fun and interesting as I get on. With regards kind of like the lore, uh, I wouldn't necessarily think that you have to be kind of um, a massive Tolkien nerd to necessarily enjoy it. Like I know with you, it's kind of that you have an aversion to anything kind of in that neighborhood and that's fine. But what I mean, what I mean is like for people who don't, aren't massively au fait with Tolkien, that shouldn't necessarily put them off. They should still try it because like there's still a chance that you'll very much enjoy it. I also think, like, for a lot of people who are well into the books, because I have read the books, um, that it's not, it's nothing kind of, like, massively kind of fan servicey about it. Like, it's not, you you really don't need to know an awful lot about your Tolkien to understand what's going on. Um, but yeah, I'd like, I had a hell of a lot of fun with it. It was one of the better games I played last year, but that that is the kind of game I enjoy. And I do think, like, I understand what you're saying about the side quests and stuff like that, but for me, it was kind of like, I was enjoying the kind of, like, as I'm running to find different artifacts around the map and stuff like that, coming across random encounters with enemies and kind of, like, cleaving 20 orcs to bits on my way. Like, I was enjoying that kind of stuff. So, like, it kept me coming back to the point where I got the platinum. And, I like, I wasn't going out of my way to get a platinum from when I started. But, like, the amount of fun I was having throughout the game and the amount of stuff I was picking up, that by the time I beat the main story of the game, I was nearly there anyway. Yeah. So that's kind of why I went on to do it, rather than kind of subject myself to torture that I was miles away by the time I completed the game and just kept playing for another 15 hours. 
Well, that's just my perspective on it. You're more than entitled to your own opinion. Like, if it's not your kind of thing, it's not your kind of thing. I understand that, like, it can be a bit kind of too fantasy or too kind of, like... Because when you pick up a lot of those artifacts, there's, like, a small short story that comes with each of them, like, which might... If you're not a Tolkien guy, that definitely wouldn't be your kind of thing, you know? No, it it really... I was... Within the first two of those, I was already just skipping. I was like, I'm not interested in this, just... Let me play the game. No, I'm not enjoying the game, Ava. No, nothing here at all. But I am more than happy to admit that it is just me. It's not my kind of thing. But hey, I'm giving it a crack. So don't don't come at me, haters. Okay, so I, I think <laughs> with that, I think we'll move on to the news for this week. Mm-hmm. Um, start off with a bit of a strange story that I was, uh, I was I saw on my IGN app yesterday. I was sitting downstairs watching TV, saw this headline. Skip past it and then did a complete double take. Oh no, I can't have read that right. Rock Band Four is an RPG, Mark. Yeah, I read a little bit about this, and I still don't quite understand what the the entire concept is. And I, from just a, a, a outside perspective looking in, I appreciate that rock bands, and I don't know whether Guitar Hero will follow suit, but they're at least trying to. Um, expand on what they already have and it's not just a cash in of oh well it's been like seven years or whatever so yeah. we'll just bring a new one out for the next generation there's at least a an element of we're going to try and incorporate some new ideas now whether these ideas are going to work into what is a fucking party game is going to work yeah. is beyond me but let me just say that i played guitar hero 3 uh, over the weekend for the first time in a while and disturbed by it or stricken by disturbed is still a a, a crack and tune and b goddamn fun to play on hard mode well, this news anyway comes through uh, IGN First, which is a new kind of partnership thing that IGN have set up where every month they take on a new game and they provide like exclusive news about that game throughout the month. So this was news that the, this comes from Mitch Dyer, the campaign in Rock Band 4 is going to be set up like an RPG where you have branching paths, you make different choices as you go along, you can make the choice whether you want to, um, I believe the the phrase they use in the article is to sell out and play corporate gigs and uh, be sponsored by somebody at the start of every gig, which kind of ramps up the difficulty because then crowds aren't on your side from the start because they think you're sellouts, so you have to play even more flawlessly in the campaign mode to try and win crowds over and increase your fan base. Or you can try go the road of artistic integrity, in big air quotes, where you can play smaller gigs and you kind of have you have a small fan base, but it's hard to earn money and stuff like that. Like like you said, I think it's interesting that they're trying something different. I always remember like playing Guitar Hero 3 on PS3 and just thinking that like there was little to no effort put in at all with the kind of the single player mode on that, where it's just like real kind of contrived excuses to do five songs in a row that are in of a similar theme. You know what I mean? Well, the theme bit was sometimes stretched quite thinly. Yeah, but very, very I mean, thinly. Like, because I, I know we, I was banging on about in the first episode that, like, the Mario Kart series hasn't um, changed the formula up over like a twenty-year period. And but with with the Guitar Hero games, I just uh, it, its primary well, focus it... is to be a party game, and I just I don't see. Uh, I listen. I appreciate that they're trying to do something new. I don't know whether it's going to work or whether it's just going to be this really kind of forced tact on element. But hey, we'll just kind of have to see see how it plays out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's um, it's 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 very interesting that they go down the RPG route because if you had said to me what would the single player campaign in a rock band look like, would not have said to you RPG. No. Absolutely, would not have said that. 
Anyway, uh, we'll move on. This is interesting. We've had a couple of Kickstarter stories in the last couple of weeks. And a couple of days ago, former members of Irrational Games, the developers of Bioshock and of Bioshock Infinite, kind of one of the lead designers from both of those games, has started up a Kickstarter for a game called Perception, which is a first-person horror game, which is where you play a blind girl who navigates the world through echolocation. Um, have you heard anything about this game yet, Mark, in the couple of days that it's been kind of since it was announced? I read the announcement. I watched the video for it. It's got a little bit of that. Well, it's got a lot of the what almost seem like kind of standard design tropes of first person horror games that we've seen over the last kind of five or six years. You know, taking that kind of core template of what Slender Man is and working from there. Um, but it's got a little bit of that. Uh, facial frame about it if you've ever seen anything yeah, of that I, game. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from. There. Yeah, it's got, you know, very much, you know, you really need to focus on where the echoes are actually going and with facial frame, you know, you had to actually take pictures of the stuff that was trying to kill you. Um, it's, I don't know, it, it's not what I would have expected um, from, you know, kind of remnants of the Irrational team, but with that said, hey, they made some pretty good games, so there's no reason that this shouldn't be something that's very good. Um, it does have a very cool kind of feel about it. It doesn't, from the trailer, it doesn't actually have much of um, a feel of horror about it, and I think that's, a lot of that is to do with the kind of colours and tones that they've gone for. But we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Uh, it certainly looks very interesting. Like, I am more of a horror game guy than you, and I can see, like... Um, you can immediately see where the horror is going to come from in it. Like, so you watch through the trailer and you see the echolocation. Like, you're going to have a lot of moments in that game where things are going to be right in front of you or right behind you. And because of the, the way you see with the echolocation, it's going to be very hard to figure out where the threat is coming from. So, like, it, it has the potential there to be an incredibly claustrophobic experience because you will feel very isolated. You won't know where anything is. I am very much eager to see where anybody that worked on the Bioshock games, what they're going to do, so I would be very much kind of keeping my eye on this project. As of now, it's been up for two days. There's 29 days to go on the funding. They've only got 37,500 of 150,000 goal, which you know, not great so far, especially when you can, you know, like it's good, but you know, when you compare it to the likes of Ukulele or anything like that, the ones that are the real pace setters for these kind of projects... Um, I just think a lot a of that, I, I think the reason it's going to be hard for it to get the funding that it wants to get is just because while the, the, the gimmick of um, playing as a blind person and using visual perception, bat sonar kind of stuff, it, it's still a first person horror game and it's a genre that's kind of being... Um, it's it's niche. Yeah, it wasn't well, even niche, it's just... it. A lot of it has been done over the last few years. And yeah, I, just, I don't think it's, it's, it's hard. Like... It's hard to surprise people anymore. No, I don't think it's anything that anyone's really clamouring for at the moment. Yeah, we we have a couple of games coming out in the next while that are looking to kind of kind of give a jump start to the horror genre again, which I think we'll talk about a couple of them in our E3 preview episode that we'll be doing in a couple of weeks, the likes of it and Until Dawn or whatever. But um, no, very much interested to see where this one's going. Um, like I said, I'm pretty much behind anything because that someone uh, responsible for Bioshock does because I think we got across enough on last week's show how much we enjoyed Bioshock so hopefully they get funded love to see it like you know new developers um, wish them the best and all that and you know the more developers there are the more games we have so we'll be happy enough with that 
We'll move on. I mainly put this in the news because uh, I came up with that great uh, pun in the headline I put on our uh, on our show notes. The weed didn't start the fire. Uh, apparently, a wee burned a man's house down. Right. So this co- this comes from IGN as well. We we is reportedly responsible for a massive fire inside an RV at a Colorado Springs or er, in Colorado Springs earlier this week. The actual, not the wires, which is like, you know, with any sort of electronic product, the thing you look to immediately if it's the start of an electrical fire is kind of faulty wiring or, you know, are the, is copper wiring inside and exposed or anything like that. No, the actual console caught fire. Um, which is pretty scary, Mark, isn't it? I'm looking around at the kind of small forest of consoles I have lying around my house. Well, I, I imagine this is, uh, the Wii looking for a, a last-ditch desperate attempt to, you know, a last hurrah, um, but accidentally sort of turning on the shotgun on itself. Yeah, um, if you have a Wii, get rid of it. <laughs> Nintendo Nintendo riding the crest of a wave on PR this week, having hired a man called Bowser to be uh, one of their VPs. I did see that as well. Um, they didn't. Uh, they weren't content enough to just have that be their only news story of the week. Their consoles have to start spontaneously combusting as well. Well, uh, they're not, you know, they're obviously not on the floor at E3 this year again, so they're, uh, you know, trying to find other ways to keep in the news as E3 rears its ugly head. Indeed, and I think we can say as well, like, kind of when you see these headlines, um, it just reminds me of, like, many, many different kind of news scares in the last decade or so about kind of, you know, your electronics are killing you and things like that. You know, mobile phones are going to be a tumour shaped like mobile phones. Um all this sort of kind of these horror stories. But I think we can say in all these years since the original Wii has been out and this is the one time this has happened that it's probably an exception rather than the rule of what's going to happen with them. Mm. Um, so anyway, we'll move on. Speaking of Nintendo not being on the floor at E3, Nintendo confirmed this week that uh, Iwata will not be, their president and CEO, Saru Iwata, will not be at E3 for the second consecutive year in a row. Now, we talked about this, you mentioned it just there, and we talked about it in previous weeks, how Nintendo in recent years have moved further and further away from the traditional press conference at E3 and more towards their Nintendo Treehouse and their Nintendo Directs at E3 and things like that. But what do you read, if anything, out of the idea that Iwata just, second year in a row, just not bothering with E3? Um, I don't... I don't really read too much into it because does he need to be there? You know, our main boy Reggie, he sort of takes the reins with this kind of thing, certainly from a more public standpoint of view when it comes to the Western world. Um, And I'm sure he'll do some funny little video during Nintendo's press conference again, as he usually does. And I'm sure we'll see him in some sort of bizarre compromising position like we did in one of the last press conference videos they did. (laughs) And that's fine with me. I, you know... You don't expect you don't expect like your head person of whatever football team, unless you're, I don't know, Mike Ashley likes to turn up to a lot of Newcastle games. I don't know why he does at this point. I'm surprised he's not being lynched. But you don't have to have that kind of person turn up to this kind of thing. I don't, yeah. I don't well, look, I like I'm not, and I'm not saying it in a way that like all the other boys are doing it, so we've got to do it. But at the same time, like even though Sony have the likes of an Andrew House or whoever to come up and like carry most of the press conference, you're still guaranteed your little kind of ten minute segment with Shu Yoshida every year, the head of Sony Worldwide Studios, and kind of like his appearance in it as well, kind of always kind of especially with this generation, 
uh, with the PS4 kind of assures PlayStation players that kind of even the higher ups at Sony are all about kind of like that they're fans. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas with Nintendo, the images we got the likes of Reggie, who is a great man, and, and, like we could we could talk about Reggie for days. But there's this kind of sense of disconnect then if an Awada or whoever isn't coming at all, that there's Nintendo corporate, and then there's the fun people who are going to try and hawk the Wii U to you. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, but see, the thing is, I find that E3 is kind well, uh, a number of these kind of conferences like this, they're pretty fucking awful in terms of making these head corporate people come across in a way that they act like human fucking beings. And I find that, you know, Reggie's like um, just a big cuddly bear, you know? And he's the closest that I feel to, you know, some sort of warmth, some sort of just resonating feeling of human emotion. While every one that we ever get from Sony and, and Microsoft, just they talk and act like fucking robots. And so I, that kind of thing doesn't bother me or concern me in any way whatsoever. But that's just me. I realize I'm, you know, I'm crazy like that. I'm sure in the in the, the the special I mentioned our E3 prediction special we'll uh, we'll talk a fair bit more about um, what we think Nintendo are going to do if anything really. I'm sure we'll have some sort of bingo scorecard with certain expectations from this year's E3. Yeah, well that's 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 my plan for the special. I have a couple of tentative plans that we'll discuss off the air for what we're going to do with that special. But, oh, um, just plan it on that on air now. Fuck it, let's spend four hours. <laughs> Uh, the final bit of news, and it's Nintendo-related as well, and this is something that, ah, oh, normally... This kind of... I, I've so far resisted being dragged into the Amiibo hole, but a new trailer dropped for Yoshi's Woolly World this week, and we knew Yoshi's Woolly World was getting special wool Yoshi Amiibos, which looked... Or Amiibo, I believe the plural of Amiibo is, I think I read. But we saw a new trailer... We knew the the Woolly Yoshi amiibo were coming, but now they're kind of expanding and letting you know what the functionality of other amiibo with that game is. Namely, uh, unlocking, I think, arguably the most adorable costume skins for a character I've ever seen. Like, it's very rare that I watch a trailer for a game and I see something on it and I just go, aww. <laughs> but let, let, let me tell you about... 15, 20 seconds into that trailer when I saw Wool Yoshi dressed as Link, I started reaching for my wallet without even realising what I was doing. So, um... What they've done is they've they've kind of taken the template that was set, or the format that was set by a little big planet for having Sackboy dressed as, as various kind of characters. Um, and... They are making a going to make a shitload of money from it. That that is what's oh, happening. Oh god, here. they are. <laughs> and the thing is, I think they've already realised that they're making a lot of money from amiibos. And I too have not been sucked into this world. And I feel like I'm strong enough at this point, aka I, you know, I rent a place out so I can't afford to buy that kind of nonsense. Um, but they are very very cute, and they are very cool. And you know, it's. You know, you, you say you've, you've resisted the uh, the amiibo so far. We'll see what happens the next time, say, when Zelda comes out or something like that and see how strong you are then. No, they've released a lot of that kind of stuff and I still... The only thing I'll buy, I don't know if it exists, maybe it does, is a Majora's Mask amiibo. Or... Uh, not yet, anyway. No. <laughs> but give it time. But I, I do like the fact that 
the they've actually you know Nintendo have been creative enough to make amiibos have functionality with their games even if they are yeah. really kind of small mandatory things which I think is actually even better because I don't think that you should be making it where you have to buy this little statue to give you something that you know gives you increased whatever yeah. gives you kind the, of uh, the an... only the only game where I see where you can come from where like you kind of like um oh like a Skylanders thing where buying the statue gives you that character in the game or something like that or gives yeah, you but, additional I mean, but that game is kind of built around that so that doesn't bother me as yeah. much as such but the the thing is the only real kind of Nintendo franchise where I can see that working perfectly they've already missed the opportunity and it's Mario Party yeah yeah if you had been able to touch your amiibo to the thing and like you get your set amount of characters that are always in Mario Party but if you can touch your amiibo to the thing and say get Mega Man in Mario Party now look anybody who's played Mario Party knows it doesn't matter really who you pick because you know it's just it's Mario Party for fuck's sake like it's not like with Mario Kart where your drivers are different weights or anything like that or Smash Brothers where they have different skills or anything like that Mario, no, just Mario all Party skin swaps yeah, Mario Party doesn't fucking matter at all. So it would have been really cool to be able to kind of touch your amiibo to it and unlock a new character to play. All you know that I had to do was design the skin, really. Yeah, or but... ha- just having one of them, and you know, it carries over certain statist- statistics. And um, if you want to incorporate some kind of RPG type upgrade system to it, and that's your character. Yeah, that for something like Mario Party. Um, yeah, I think that would be a really kind of cool thing. Well, for now at least they've missed the boat on that. So, bah. that's that's wishful thinking. But I am, I am going to be getting because I do like um, as as maligned as they are by some people. I do enjoy the odd Yoshi game. I everything I've seen about Yoshi's Woolly World makes me really want to try it. So I'll probably be getting that, and I am this close to paying the extra because they're usually about an extra ten euro over here. I don't know what the price difference is here uh, in the UK. Bring about a ten euro difference to get the amiibo with it, so ugh, I'm I'm on the precipice of getting that adorable Yoshi amiibo. Um, we'll see if I kind of bring myself back from the brink before then. I'm just gonna find you just lying in a bath, a slight bit of blood blood pouring out your nose, and just in a bath full of amiibos, living the dream. Yeah. Anyway, with the news out of the way now. I was going to move on to the the book club, but I wrote something down here in my notes that I wanted to ask you because it's something you brought up during your uh, playing this week. Um, you were saying about the kind of the um, playing with the DualShock Four controller, and this was something I hadn't asked you before. What are your thoughts on the um, the kind of the DualShock Three versus the DualShock Four? This is something I'd been discussing with my uh, friend of mine there last week. Um, it, it feels good. I don't really have any complaints. I remember the first time I played the DualShock Four. Um, I think it was in like a, a game store last year, and I mean the only issue I ever had with the PS3 controller, and I think it's kind of a, in universal agreement, is just that the R2 and L2 trigger buttons were pretty naff. But at the same time, for the most part, if you was playing any kind of first-person shooter, you was probably going to be playing on Xbox for Xbox Live anyway. Yeah. Um, but you know they they. Sony realised that and they fixed that and, and they feel a lot more comfortable the um, the, the actual sticks feel very comfortable um, yeah I, I don't really have any complaints about it the actual the, the option and share buttons are well the option button shall we say feels really awkward and there was a number of times during Guacamole where I wanted to press that and I just couldn't actually fucking 
find the thing yeah, because it it's, doesn't it's, it's feel an natural. Adjustment. Yeah, it's yeah. an adjustment. Um, I've had 20 years of pressing the start button in one location yeah. and now it's slightly moved to the right and up and I just cannot find it when I'm not looking at it. Yeah, I'm going to make a weighty claim here, Mark. And that is that the DualShock 4 is the most, is, is I think my favourite controller. Of all the controllers? I think that I've played with it's the most comfortable for me in the way I play. I think it might well be. Um, I... I had three problems with the DualShock 3. Because I like the PlayStation controller is very familiar to me. I have never been. I have an Xbox One now, and it's a hell of an, an adjustment. I've never really cared for like everybody says Xbox 360 controller is where it's at. Um, like a lot of people say that's the best controller they've ever played with. No. That's fine. Entitled <laughs> to their opinion and stuff like that. Never been for me. The Xbox controllers have never really been for me. No, the, the, I, I'll tell you straight um, away. The original Xbox far too fucking big. The Xbox 360 that D pad can just die a thousand deaths. The um the problems I had with the DualShock Three though, like one, yeah, the triggers as you mentioned never really bothered me a huge amount, but did bother me a little bit, especially when you got through kind of like, I'd say early in the PS3 generation wouldn't have been that like all the kind of the firing functionality in games started moving towards those triggers rather than the old kind of R1 to shoot on the PS in the PS2 era, so the triggers did start to bother me the more we got through uh, the PS3 generation and kind of. They're the thing people struggle with most when they move from Xbox to PlayStation uh, or PlayStation 3. Uh, I've seen that with a lot of people who are normally Xbox players who play a game with me on PS3 and they just could not deal with the triggers at all. Uh, my problems as well were that the um, the sticks just kind of like they didn't grip enough on your finger as you were using them. Didn't much care for that. And then the other would mean that they were far too light. Um, this... DualShock 4, I'm holding one of my hands now because I can't use my descriptive powers when I'm not looking at it directly. It's a bit more compact than DualShock 3. There's a bit more weight to it. It feels more substantial. Yet, the two buttons, the share and the options, are a bit more out of the way than Start and Select used to be, but I think within a month, I have that down path. Like, it's not something that I even think about anymore. And it just it just feels damn good. The, the triggers, as you said, an awful lot better. The only thing that ever bugged me about the DualShock 4 was the light bar at the start. But um, eventually, when they patched in that you could dim the light on it, that's what I did straight away, and it's never bothered me since. Um, so yeah, I think the DualShock Four is arguably my favorite controller. What what was yours? Ha, I'm I'm a man that does enjoy the N64 controller, but I enjoy it. I enjoy <laughs> you do, it for two you do reasons. realize you are you are in the minority on that. Right? I, there are two reasons: a because I'm in the minority. Yeah, I'm fully aware of that. Uh, and B, it's just it's the controller I played played the most, and it's just I like the fact that it, you know it's Nintendo. That's what they do. They make some wacky controllers, and it's not in any way practical. It's really cumbersome. It's pr- actually quite awful in a lot of ways. But for what yeah, it was, like, it's 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 clearly designed for a person with three hands for a start. Yes, um, <laughs> but hey, Nintendo, they're forward thinking like that. I yeah, like please. the fact. The simple fact is the N sixty four controller was built with that console in mind. And there's very few games on that system where that controller does not fit or suit. And, yeah, no, that's correct, yeah. And, hey, maybe it's just me, but I found that going between the D-pad and the stick was... I, I never had any issues with that. Um, I, I it, it wasn't something that was awkward for me. But, All hey, I know about that, the only downside I can really say about the N64 controller is that I, I reckon I still might have permanent wounds in the palms of my hand from playing Mario Party on the N64. 
That is the, and having to rotate that stick as quickly as possible. That is the one small downside. Granted, I'll give you that. But other than it, that, it, it's perfect. It was not the most comfortable stick I've ever uh, I've ever played with on a controller. No, in in, in yeah, hindsight, no. that stick is it could do with a little bit of padding around it. Um, <laughs> but I like that. You know, you, you have to suffer for your art, and that's the N sixty four control. I am just trolling. It's not that good, but I like it. Just leave me alone. All right. Will do. Okay, right, and with that, we'll move on to the Link to the Cast Book Club. This week, Portal. This was a triumph. I'm making a note here. Huge success. It's hard to overstate my satisfaction. Aperture science. We do what we must because we can. For the good of all of us, except the ones who are dead. But there's no sense crying over every mistake. You just keep on trying till you run out of cake. And the science gets done and you make a neat plan for the people who are still alive. So Portal is a first-person puzzle game, even great start, released by Valve as part of the Orange Box in October 2006 on 360 and PC and November 2006 on PS3. Uh, The game itself was a spiritual sequel to a game called Nerbacular Drop, an indie freeware game which was developed by students at a place called DigiPen Institute of Technology. Uh, A dev from Valve saw that game at a career fair, brought the students who designed the game to Gabe Newell, the, the head honcho at Valve, who hired them for Valve to begin making a similar kind of physics-based puzzle game to fit within the Half-Life universe. Uh, Portal, as I said, is a first-person puzzle game, uh, physics-based. You play a character called Chell, uh, who's ostensibly a lab rat run through a series of test chambers in Aperture Laboratories at the mercy of a beautifully insane AI called GLaDOS. Your only weapon to aid your progression is a portal gun, which shoots orange and blue portals onto suitable surfaces. You come in an orange portal, you come out the blue portal, and vice versa. Throughout the tests, you're reminded that your reward for completing these challenges is some delicious cake and refreshments. The game is both a perfectly balanced physics-based puzzle game and has some of the most incredible dark humour yet seen to this day in 2015 in any game, uh, and scored a Metacritic rating at the time of 90. Where do you really even start with Portal, Mark? Uh, what was your first exposure to the game? So my first exposure was Yahtzee. Um, he gave it the first glowing review that I remember seeing on Zero Punctuation. And I was going to get the orange box anyway because um, I hadn't really experienced Half-Life 2 properly at that point. And obviously it came with Episode 1, Episode 2... Um, and it came with this thing that called Team Fortress 2 that, I mean, I had just started um, university around this time uh, and I did a, a course around video game design and so a lot of the people there were very much, because I was never a big PC gamer, but a lot of the people in my course were and they were all talking about Team Fortress. So we played a lot of Team Fortress 2 during time we should have been actually doing work, but that's a story for another day. Um, but the thing that was kind of skipped over, or I didn't hear much about, was Portal until Yahtzee uh, had his kind of glowing review up. So that was the thing that I went straight to first, um, because I'm a person that 
I always just appreciate something that is completely out there, is, is a bit wacky, is a bit different. Um, and it's just, it is so entirely my kind of game. It's this short, sweet little package that all the excess is kind of trimmed away. It has just the most genius um, dialogue. Um, the, 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 the just Everything about GLaDOS is, is she's still one of the best characters that's ever been conceived for a video game. Um, and the actual puzzle element of of Portal is just the way that those levels are put together are they're not entirely impossible but when you first come into a room there's always that first kind of like what in the hell am I supposed to do and it's one of those games that you really do feel like you've you know solved the Rubik's Cube or something when you manage to complete one of the levels um, to me like I, I came as um portal i'd say in mid to late 2007 like i said there was a period where i wasn't playing a lot of games and kind of uh, one of the games that was the exception of this kind of like is portal where at some point during college um someone said to me like what are you doing with your life you haven't played portal you know <laughs> like you know you've got to just play this game fucking play it now jesus play it um so went out got it absolutely brilliant experience start to finish i always think the mark of a brilliant puzzle game is a puzzle that seems so ridiculously difficult before you complete it that looking back at how you completed it you feel like a fucking idiot that you didn't see it you know that kind of like it's it's complex and simple all at once that when you've gotten to the end of the puzzle you go oh yeah no that was obvious really when i had thought about it but until that point you feel like putting your head through a wall it's frustrating you that much like you said, I think the thing that really puts it over the top, because like the physics in it are brilliant, the kind of the austere kind of environment of the aperture test facility contrasts with the bright colours of your two portals is excellent. Um, the puzzles are excellent. The thing that really sends it over the top, as you mentioned yourself, is like the pitch black dialogue that goes on, and not even dialogue, but the monologuing of Glados throughout the game, kind of like at first seeming to kind of like slightly aid you in describing what's going on but then as the game kind of go, uh, goes on very quickly escalates into just kind of like making fun of you at every turn um, I pulled some samples from, from uh, wiki quotes of some of the, the kind of the great lines that GLaDOS delivers throughout the game and it's kind of like remember when the platform was sliding into the fire pit and I said goodbye and you were like no way and then I was all we pretended we were going to murder you that was great <laughs> You know, then there's please be advised that a noticeable taste of blood is not part of any test protocol, but is an unintended side effect of the aperture science material emancipation grid, which may, in semi-rare cases, emancipate dental fillings, crowns, tooth enamel, and teeth. Like, it is incredible. Like, just going through, solving the puzzles, like you said, feeling brilliant once you've accomplished, you feel like you've really accomplished something once you get through the puzzles as well, that you feel like you've been through something. And then just on top of it, the real kind of icing on the cake, like it would have been a solid puzzle game without any of this kind of, this humour to it, but it makes it one of the best gaming experiences I've had in a long, long time going through this. And like you said, I think it really benefits from the fact that it is short and sweet. Um, I know Portal 2, when you play the sequel, I love Portal 2. I don't know how you feel about Portal 2. I love Portal 2. Very different game. Like the puzzles are there, but they also realise that if you just did the same thing but more without adding any kind of like 
interesting narrative to it that it would have been kind of like it would have worn out its welcome very quickly so I think they did something very different in different parts of that game than they did in this one so I think they realised that kind of the short and sweet approach in Portal 1 was the best way to go and like it's damn near flawless I do think that um, I, I with you I do enjoy Portal 2 it's the kind of game where it actually could have benefited if it had come out around this time where they could have really um, taken a, not episodic approach, but it could release like small packs of like 20 test levels, uh, test chambers at a time. Because um, I just, just with Portal 2, that was the way I had to play it. I had to play it for like short bursts of about an hour at a time, mainly because your brain just goes into complete meltdown after a short period of time. Yeah. Um, one of the things really to talk about is that the the progression in the character of GLaDOS and the kind of relationship between you and her, um, I say her, it's an, an inanimate AI system, but regardless, there's more character progression in this AI system and a, a character that doesn't talk than there is in a, quite a significant portion of games that come out even to this day. And um, that is is really a credit to Valve and their ability to tell a story throughout you know the duration of you actually playing the game. And you know anyone that's ever played Half Life knows that Valve are very good at that kind of thing. And for them to take that sort of thing that they've done with Half Life and incorporate it into this just wacky little side project of theirs, but still it kind of upholds that high level of, of storytelling that they can do for this wacky little puzzle game um, it's, it's pretty fucking remarkable yeah I think like really because it's such a nice short experience because like if you have Steam or you still have a PS3 knocking around it is absurdly cheap to go and pick up the game if you have, if you have kind of feel like the way I did with Bioshock last week if you've managed to last like it's been out for the guts of a decade now and if you've managed to get this far without playing it, you've got to stop what you're doing right now and go and download Portal. Um, genuinely, it, it'd be... It is one of my favourite games of all time. And I, like, I, I really don't know what... It's hard to talk extensively about something that's just so damn perfect, really, isn't it? And the thing is, as well, if you want to take it as an entire package, you've got Portal, you've got this really, and to this day, um, you know, heavily played multiplayer game in Team Fortress 2. And then you've got Half-Life 2 with its two episodic content um, packs as well. In one entire package for a price that at the time was, say, 40 quid. I don't think there is a, a, a kind of a disc with gaming content on it that comes anywhere near close to the sort of level of quality that the orange box is. And I don't think you'll ever find anything like that again. Certainly the level of value for money. Oh God, especially for now. I mean, you could probably pick that up for like 10 quid in CEX. It's just, it's crazy what you get for that. It is, uh, it's absolutely ridiculous. And I think like really before we kind of spend the next 10 minutes going, it's brilliant, it's great, it's brilliant. I'm running out of superlatives. Uh, we should probably kind of tie things up, don't you think? Um, unless you have anything more to say about Portal. No, it's just... I remember it's... like Because 2007 um, was the year where... It's, to some, it's it's one of the greatest years in terms of... Well, video games, essentially. 
Um, the amount of stuff that came out at that time, including last week's uh, edition, Bioshock, um, it was the year that really got me back into thinking, fuck me, video games, this this is fucking, this is where it's at. Because I had a, a few years where I was kind of drifting in and out and nothing was really keeping and holding my attention. Um, and Portal was one of those games, along with a few others, like Bioshock and like fucking Viva Pinata, uh, where I just it pulled me back in and uh, I've not been able to, you know, get my head back over the surface since for better and for worse, for a number of reasons. And uh, just a live check of Amazon, you can pick up Half-Life 2, the orange box for £9.29 sterling on PS3 and £7.17 on PC. And I'm so... thinking, if you're talking sort of hours, the the amount of hours that you have content-wise, that's probably what, like... 10, 15 pence an hour. Yeah, it's pretty competitive. Really. And each one of those hours is a good time. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There's not not a not a bad one in the bunch there with the orange box. So uh, I think we'll wrap things up there. But the last thing we have to deal with is it is your turn to pick the book club for next week, Mark. So what do you have in store for us for episode five? Yeah, so we've been keeping it kind of... Uh modern for the last couple of weeks so i'm gonna i'm gonna really throw us back now uh to the year of 1993 Oof, going in the wayback machine we're going in the wayback machine uh this is a game that i played a hell of a lot of as a child and it's a game that i still play now when it comes out on whatever new console that it probably doesn't really need to come out on but whatever um i won't say too much more we'll say it for next week but i i want to talk about the classic, the classic for the Sega Genesis or Mega Drive, depending on what part of the continent you were on at the time, uh, Streets of Rage 2. Ooh, a good one. Now, it's also, it's not really a game that I think we'll be able to say too much about because it's, it's kind of um, kind of basic in what it is, really. But there, there are a few things that I need to talk about. Um, and, hey, fuck it, it's linked to the cast. And when it comes to nostalgia kicks, I don't get much bigger than Streets of Rage 2. So. It's it's our show. We make the rules, Mark. It's Fucking right. Talk about whatever you want. And it means so. I can play part of the soundtrack for next week, and that's kind of the key thing. So <laughs> That's that's mainly why we're doing it, isn't it? More or less, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, then I'll leave it to you to wrap things up. So Cool. Okay, well, uh, once again, thank you very much for listening. Um, again, as I said last week, any emails, any feedback, any comments, please send our way. Um, yeah, I hope everyone's had a lovely week, and I hope you have a lovely week coming up. Dave Ryan, I hope you don't injure or cripple yourself between now and next week. Well, if I don't, we'll have nothing to talk about, so let's hope I do. This is true, and uh, I guess we'll start having to make plans for our E3 special. Oh, God. Indeed. Looking forward to it. News of Palooza. That's what we should call it. News of Palooza. Catchy, it has, rough tongue. It has a ring to it. No, no, <laughs> no. Actually, I, there's one thing actually I wanted to say before we go. We never spoke about. I know this is obviously a video game podcast, but I really feel it needs to be mentioned. Uh, Mad Max, quite fucking good. Well, it's a it's a bit of a film, all right. It's a, I think I described it when I came out as it's like less of a film and more a two hour car chase, which is just fine by me. Yeah, and did you see the footage of the uh, the game for Mad Max? I've actually seen nothing about this so far. I know of it. I know it's its existence, but I haven't seen any footage of it yet. Hey, I'm, 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 I've got thumbs up in many areas. I've got a good feeling about this. You're, you're cautiously optimistic. I'm cautiously optimistic because I'm about all things in life. <laughs> good times. Yeah.
Cool. Okay. Uh, yeah, we'll wrap up then. So thank you very much for listening, and we will see you again next week. Ta-ra.